Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Hey listeners, Claire here. Before we get started on this week's episode, I just wanted to let you know that our dear friend and producer Alfredo Monteca is leaving us and we wanted to just take a brief moment here to let you know how important he's been to the gallery gap and let him know how much he'll be missed. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Alfredo. Big hugs and we'll miss you. Hello and welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that examines inequity and equity in museums, exhibitions, collections, and programming. I'm Claire. And I'm Melissa. This week we are looking at the life of artist Kara Walker as the figure is displaying her work, The Emancipation Approximation, through August 27, 2017. This suite of 27 screen prints was gifted to the Figgy in 2015, and this was in celebration of the Figgy's 10th anniversary in its new building, which was designed by Sir David Chipperfield. Just a quick reminder, while we may have just celebrated our 10th anniversary at the Figgy, the actual museum collection was started in 1925. And in thinking about that, it's really great to consider all the generosity that's led up to the Figgy's collection, because since that point, we've grown in size 100 times over. Yeah, and this recent work by Kara Walker is an impressive addition to the collection that builds on the Figgy's vision of collecting and exhibiting artworks that encourage visitors to have difficult conversations, including about historical and contemporary implications of racism. While the Figgy has been purposely broadening our collections within our collecting scope to be more inclusive and, um, and representative of the diverse community in which we live, I feel like we're still able to do more through exhibitions than through collections right now. And that's why I agree with you. Um, this is an impressive gift to the museum, but I'm still reminded of other glaring gaps. And you know, one, one that comes to mind that we mentioned in an earlier episode is with our Haitian collection we do have a strong Haitian collection, and it allows us to explore religion, colonization, race relations, and more. But we don't have any artworks from Haiti that have been made by women. And beyond collecting, I also think we could do better at communicating with the public. Already, since we've had this exhibition by Kara Walker open, many people have left comments about how grateful they are that we have borrowed this exhibition and brought it to our community. And they totally miss that it's even more than that. You know, we're really committed to moving toward equity in all forms of our collection. This is an important message about our core values, and we need to make sure that we're sharing it. And as we've mentioned in earlier episodes, an awareness and intentionality in your museum's collecting practice is essential. The two of us have talked about this a bit more in earlier episodes about gender balance in galleries. And while the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art did better in those spaces... In making sure that our collections reflect our community and our college from a racial or cultural standpoint, we still have a ways to go. While we have good representation in our collections of works by artists of a variety of Native American and African cultures, there are others who are sorely underrepresented in our collections, such as Black Americans. This was something I discovered two years ago while trying to put together a number of works that complement the Augie Reads book. And just for those of you that aren't familiar, all first-year students at Augustana have a common read in their first-year inquiry classes. And for two years, our book has been James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. To the best of my knowledge, in our collection, we only have one work by a Black American artist, that's Romare Bearden, and one work about the Black American experience by Thomas Hart Benton in the collection. 
Was that intentional on Augustana's part? Of course not. But it illustrates, as we discuss with gender parity, the importance of reminding yourself to think deeply about equity in collections. This problem is one that we're working on fixing, but also speaks to another issue that we face at Augustana, how to collect with an equitable intentionality when there's not a sustainable acquisitions fund. We have little money available for collecting, and at this moment, it's not replenishing itself, so it's not sustainable. So how do we go about this in a manner that's not tokenist and is rather thoughtful, meaningful, and equitable? And I don't yet have an answer for that. I'm really glad that you brought up acquisition funds. This presents a struggle for us, too, at the Figgy. Something I want to mention again is that the Figgy did not purchase the Kara Walker pieces. They were a gift, and they were donated by the New York-based gallery Sycamore Jenkins & Company. We have a longstanding relationship with Brent Sikama, the gallery's founder, and from his early days, when the gallery was first opened in Soho and called the Worcester Gardens, Sikama has been supportive of artists like Walker who don't mind pushing the limits of comfort in order to have a candid conversation. Listeners, at this point, we want to mention that some of the topics we will explore in this episode include violence, racially motivated violence, and sexual violence. And so if any of our listeners need to skip this week, we'll be right here on the next episode. So through her work, Walker demands that we consider the origins of racial inequality while she interrogates stereotypes that characterized race relations in the antebellum South and that still exist today. Before we describe the exhibition, though, it's important to reflect on Walker's biography as it highly informs the art that she creates. She was born in 1969 to academic parents and spent her early years in Stockton, California. When she was 13, her father, who's also an artist, accepted a position at Georgia State University in Stone Mountain, Georgia. So her daily life changed dramatically with this move. No longer in liberal coastal California, she found herself in a community where she was the victim of deep-seated racism. This was in the early 80s. Unbelievably, or maybe not so unbelievably, given the hatred that's flaring up even today, the Ku Klux Klan was holding regular rallies down there at the time. In addition to Stone Mountain having been a haven for the Klan, Walker has referred to it as a sort of Mount Rushmore for Confederate heroes. And it's hard to imagine a place more different from where she had been living up to that point. Again, this was the early 1980s, the era of cable TV and personal computers, not so far from where we are now. Yet Walker recalls being told that she looked like a monkey, being accused of being a Yankee, and much, much worse. Given this new life, Walker found escape in the library, where she read the illustrated narratives of the South that helped her better understand the customs and traditions of this vastly different world. After graduating high school, Walker attended Atlanta College of Art and focused on painting and printmaking. There, her professors encouraged her to hone in on race-specific issues. As a black artist, there was an expectation from her white professors and fellow black artists to represent the black experience positively. Walker said of this... I was making big paintings with mythological themes. When I started painting black figures, the white professors were relieved, and the black students were like, she's on our side. These are the kinds of issues that white male artists just don't have to deal with. One artist who resonated with Walker at the time was Adrian Piper, a conceptual artist and philosopher who deals with otherness and racial passing and racism. About Piper, Walker states, quote, this was the first voice that resonated with me in talking about race with objectivity and sternness. Until then, I only knew black art in the romantic sense, that it was only about positive representations of African-American life, end quote. Reflecting on her own life, and especially the shock that came upon moving to the South, Walker decided to identify a point of origin in her own work, being American, being black, or being a woman. 
She determined to explore being American, the idea of place or America, and then move forward from there. After the Atlanta College for Art, she attended the Rhode Island School of Design. Her focus expanded to include sexual and racial themes that were based on African Americans in art, literature, and historical narrative. She became engrossed with the antebellum era while reading Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell, and this is about the years roughly 1789 to 1861, the ones that lead up to the Civil War, and that would become really the focus of her future work, The Emancipation Approximation. Walker was fascinated by how the romanticized grandeur of Mitchell's novel distracted from the story's blatant racism. She even began to envision herself as Scarlett O'Hara, the slave-owning heroine. Of this discomforting experience, Walker said, quote, A lot of what I was wanting to do in my work and what I have been doing has been about the unexpected. That unexpected situation of wanting to be the heroine and yet wanting to kill the heroine at the same time. End quote. The antebellum South, about which Margaret Mitchell wrote and Kara Walker explored in her art, was also marked by the rise of the cotton industry and the institutionalization of slavery in the South, large-scale industrialization, and the advancement of abolitionism in the North. In the Emancipation Approximation, Walker uses the silhouette form for which she is well-known to examine this subject matter. It was during her time in graduate school at RISD that Walker came to this form. The silhouette was popularized during the Victorian era by artists such as Auguste Edouard. Walker used this as a basis for her images, recognizing the importance of its history in her own work. About it, she states, quote, Cut black paper happened because it was a second-class kind of art form. The silhouettes have nothing to do with the grand trajectory of fine art history. As a way of rejecting those histories and also embracing a kind of bombast that cycloramas and history paintings represented. In fact, the silhouette is essential to the meaning of her work. It is a potent metaphor for the stereotype. As she states, this metaphor, quote, says a lot with very little information. It addresses the idea that someone's outward appearance allows for an insight into their character, and by reducing the figure to only an outline, Walker is able to remove any outward references, causing the viewer to make assumptions about race of her characters or about the roles of villain and hero and who takes them on. She also utilizes its basic form to play tricks with the eye, and you will notice that in many of her artworks it is difficult to determine what limbs belong to which figures, and these ambiguities, or reductions of identity and role, force us to question what we know and what we see. In those ambiguous forms, Walker has included some of the violence and hatred she has herself received. During an interview with the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, she spoke of how taken she is by the ease with which she creates this art, and in general, how easy it is for humanity to carry out atrocities, including some of the ones she depicts in her artwork. For instance, in 2011, Walker came across a news article from 1878 from the Daily Constitution, an Atlanta newspaper. In great detail, the article described the lynching of a black woman. The mob pulled down the branch of a tree, tied the woman's neck to it, and then released the branch, flinging her body high into the air. Walker used this story as the basis for a char charcoal drawing that shows the absolute horror of this tragic event, complete with blood spilt and the victim's assailants laughing. About the story and why she was drawn to it, Walker said, quote, It's the completely absurd extreme violent situation that required so much perverse ingenuity, end quote. And while this event took place in 1878, other such atrocities have since occurred. Even in our time, brutality against people of color persists. Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, 
Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, India Cummings. These names alone should remind our listeners that the brutality still persists. Walker sees a direct line between the racist historical attitude she examines in her work and contemporary events. One personal story she shares is from 2012. She and her daughter took a road trip from Brooklyn down through southern states. She talks about visiting diners where the heads of old white men turned to give them what she called the 22nd stare. She recalls swimming in a motel pool and watching the other white swimmers suddenly vanish. She recalls overhearing a small girl tell her father, I thought they were no here. There's a word I left out of the quote, as I don't think it's my word to use. And these stories of hatred, racism, and violence from the 19th century, and well before then, actually, to today, are difficult to discuss and terrifying once comprehended. But talk about it, directly confront it, stare it in the face, and realize that there is something simultaneously repellent and familiar in Walker's work. Racism surrounds us on a daily basis, and it's just too often that we look the other way. But Walker will not let us do that. The Emancipation Approximation is one of her powerful and thought-provoking artworks. The name of the piece refers to the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln issued in 1863, declaring, All persons held as slaves within rebellious states are and henceforth shall be free, which, by the way, was still met with resistance in some Confederate strongholds and not fully enforced until June 19, 1865, when Mayor General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas, with the news that the war had ended and all enslaved there were now free, the anniversary of which is now celebrated as Juneteenth and which was celebrated locally earlier in the month. By changing the word from proclamation, proclaim, means to announce officially, to approximation, approximate, close to the actual, Walker suggests a continuing oppression that lingers on even to this day. The 27 screen prints from this series are displayed at the Figgy until August 27th, and we hope that you'll have an opportunity to visit and reflect on the exhibition. So, the exhibition. While Walker may set her work in the past and work in an antiquated medium, she encourages viewers to consider America's current relationship to race and gender as filtered through her personal experience as a modern black woman. In The Emancipation Approximation, she reinterprets the myth of Leda and the Swan, the Greek myth wherein Zeus takes on the guise of a swan to seduce Leda. Walker uses this myth to allude to the abusive sexual relationships that sometimes occurred between male slave owners and their slaves. Walker's interpretation does not follow the trajectory of this ancient inspiration, but allows for a reversal of the power relationship that results in a very violent finale. Of the 27 works included, there are two we will introduce in this podcast. The first is a silhouette of a white plantation mistress who is resting her head in her hand, elbow on top of a tree stump. An axe leans against the stump, and in the foreground are nine heads of decapitated African Americans, men, women, and children, presumably having been cut off by the woman in the scene. It's notable that Walker has put the plantation mistress in this role of aggressor, as it calls attention to the fact that women were not innocent of racism and aggression before, during, or after the Civil War. In fact, the entire scene suggests the hostility that many whites might have felt in the antebellum South. Another artwork from the scene depicts a nude, black, pregnant woman who had just given birth to two babies, 
both of whom are still connected to her by umbilical cords. On the ground, where they have landed, one child reaches back towards the mother with a gesture of need, while the other is about to be purposely stepped upon by a white child of elementary school age. The mother looks at her babies, as if unable to help them, and yet a third baby enters the scene, this one falling from the sky. Standing alone, it is difficult to interpret the third child's role in the artwork. But when considered part of the exhibition, it is possible to connect it with another of the silhouettes. The other depicts a white plantation mistress, quote, setting free a black baby. And this scene resembles one where a woman might be setting free a young bird, gently pushing it forward and upward so it can fly free. Some believe this falling baby is the same one from the other scene. Having been set free there, the baby is not actually free here. Many children were enticed or tricked into indentured servitude after the war, which was really only different than slavery in name. In any event, in all of these works, there exists space for the reflection on power and powerlessness and freedom or the lack thereof. We want to reiterate just how important Kara Walker is to the art world. By the age of 27, she received the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant Scholarship, becoming the youngest artist to do so. This award is given to a number of people annually who have demonstrated their dedication and creativity in exploring creative pursuits. She received this in 1997 and has continued to be praised for her art and how it challenges traditional preconceived ideas about black people and black artists. Even so, she has come under heavy criticism, suggesting that she is reinforcing racial stereotypes rather than confronting them. One example can be heard in the words of Betty Tsar, Alison Tsar's mother and also an artist. She wrote an open letter to the art world asking, quote, are African-Americans being betrayed under the guise of art, end quote, and suggesting that Walker's work did little more than perpetuate negative stereotypes and set the clock back on race representations in America. Walker's father, Larry Walker, published a letter in her defense. In it, he argued that his generation of black artists had fought to give future generations the right to make any sort of art. In Walker's words, quote, he was saying, basically, that I should be able to do whatever the hell I want. Another advocate for Walker is the conceptual artist and political activist Barbara Kruger, who applauded Walker's willingness to expose the ridiculousness of these stereotypes. And while we focused on Walker's silhouette form, please know that she works beyond that form. If you haven't heard of her monumental installation piece, A Subtlety, or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, which she completed in 2014, be sure to check that out. In it, Walker took her inspiration in an abandoned, soon-to-be-destroyed Domino Sugar Refinery, and she followed back in time the role of African-American slaves to sugar growth and production. Exhibited only for as long as the refinery was still standing, this work is complicated and comprehensive as it examines race, sexuality, wealth, and more. There's a great video on that project in Art 21, and we'll include a link on the website. I had to learn more about sugar in the process of trying to understand this building. Sugar comes from sugar cane. Sugar cane is grown in tropical climates. Sugar cane is and has been harvested by slaves, underpaid workers, and children, possibly. It's a fascinating and very long history. She's now working on a new public art piece for Prospect New Orleans, a triennial contemporary art exhibition that opens in November. But bringing it back to Walker's art in our community, do go and see and reflect on emancipation approximation. Walker's work is important, and it is important that it be shown in our community. I couldn't agree with you more. 
As a reminder, the Figgy does own this series, and it will be on display until August 27th, and then again at some future date since it is part of our permanent collection. As another reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play, or you can listen to the episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us. Also, don't forget that we include additional information and materials on our Facebook page that relate to the episode. So if you are interested in digging deeper, be sure to follow us. As always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. Remember that this project only exists because of listener support, and so be sure to go to wvik.org and click on the Donate button. A special thanks to our production team, Lacey Scarmana and Alfredo Monteca, and this podcast would still be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Paterson Pates Design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. And last but not least, thank you to all of our listeners. Until next time. Take care. <laughs>